Thanks for listening to part one of my Audible original podcast. In part two, the saga continues as parents and children grapple with the fallout and finally confront the man behind Donor 9623. With startling discoveries and new secrets revealed, I take a closer look at the complicated dynamics of families born of the biggest hoax in reproductive history. Don't miss this gripping next chapter. An all-new Part 2 is available now, only from Audible. Visit audible.com donor. All right, you good to go? Yeah, good. And what, what would you like me to call you? Uh, Chris is fine. I'd been trying to contact donor 9623, Chris, for months. He was the person at the center of this whole story. The only one who could say why he became a donor and why he told all those lies and why he kept on providing his sperm for so long. He was the mystery that everyone I talked to, all the parents and children, police and psychiatrists, really anyone who'd ever crossed paths with the man had been speculating about. Then one day, my phone rang. When he said his name, I couldn't believe it was actually him. At first, I didn't. But there it was, that distinctive voice from the recording with Mary Hartley. He said he'd heard that I'd reached out to his family and asked me not to. I said sure, that the one I wanted to talk to was him. I asked if he would sit for an interview. He'd never spoken publicly and said no. It'd been too rough on him, he said, when the news stories came out back in 2015. Chris tale of deceit began in Metro Atlanta. It had taken him the last five years to regain a kind of peace and stability in his life. He didn't want me to reopen all those painful questions about his darkest moments. So we just talked. Not about him exactly, but some of the things he'd been through and thought about, like mental health stigma and the criminal justice system. When he had to go, I asked if we could talk again. And we did, a bunch of times over the next few weeks. At the end of each call, I didn't know if that would be the last I heard from him. But then one day, he texted me. He changed his mind. He wanted to go on the record. I just want the opportunity to express my side of the story and paint a fuller picture of who I am as a person. We set a date to meet in Virginia, where he lives now. I booked plane tickets in a hotel, but then a death in his family forced us to reschedule. Weeks passed. Next, I got him a flight to meet me in California. That's when the pandemic hit. I started getting nervous the interview wouldn't actually happen. We eventually agreed to do it over video. He went to a recording studio near his home, and I spoke to him for mine. When the day came and I saw Chris for the first time, something struck me. Over these past months, he'd been a character in a story I was telling. But now, here in front of me, was a real person. Chris is 43. He's stockier than the pictures I'd seen from his 20s. Still handsome, clean cut, with a trimmed beard and glasses. The first thing I wanted to ask is where he even got the idea to become a sperm donor. 
One of my roommates had seen an advertisement in one of the student newspapers and thought I would be a good candidate. It's a way to earn income, and it didn't take up very much time. Teaching music, I was making maybe 600 bucks a month. Uh, So I was really just barely getting by, and it was a way for me to provide some stability in my life. How did it feel like to be there? I mean, it was an honor in a lot of ways, right? So I felt like I was sort of special, I guess. Special how? Because I was helping people conceive children. That's a profound thing, right? So I felt like if I could help these people out, then, then I was happy to do so. I just remember thinking it was going to be a positive experience. Was it? Yeah. This interview with Chris lasted over five hours. Listening to him gave me the impression he was here in good faith. He was addressing not just me, but everyone who'd been affected by what he did. And while he may not have worked through it all in his mind, he was here to try. I wanted to understand, did he appreciate the full implications of what he had done? But I also wanted to know about his life. Ordinary things I thought his biological kids might be curious about. What kind of guy is he? What's he into? What does he do for work? I work for a research institution. I help manage some of the internal documentation that goes back and forth uh, between various scientists and various review boards. What are your cat's names? Andromeda and Perseus. They were born during the Perseid meteor shower. Favorite memory from your childhood? I remember seeing my dad for the first time in a long time. I remember we flew a kite. We went to go and see a horse that was nearby in a pasture. And so he took some pictures of me in the pasture, and then I got to pet the horse. There's something about having a relationship with your father that is very grounding. It was surprising to hear this from Chris, father to scores of kids he'd never met. I asked him if he ever imagined himself being a dad, not just a donor. In fact, I've always wanted kids. Um, You know, but that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's in the cards anymore. We'll have to see. Chris walked through the doors of Zytex for the first time when he was 23. That was in 2000, a few years after he dropped out of college. He was working as a waiter, trying to find a way back to school. Looking back at that time, I asked him, what was he hoping for in life? I mean, success, right? I think everybody wants to lead a successful life. uh, And I was definitely in that crowd. You know, I, I wanted to be a professional musician, and that, I think, would have entailed you know, national tours and playing in front of hundreds or thousands of people, you know, and I I don't want to use the term rock star because I think there's a little bit of a stigma that comes with that term, but I definitely wanted to be a, a, you know, a successful musician. There were warehouse parties called raves where people would go and just dance for a few hours. The circle of friends that I had found uh, at the restaurant, we would go to raves, you know, maybe once, twice a week. Were drugs part of that rave scene? Somewhat, somewhat. What's your emotional life like during this period? I think in general, my emotional health was pretty good. Chris said he wanted to set the record straight, explain what really happened. But already I was starting to wonder, was he being honest? In Chris's telling, it sounded like everything in this period was pretty much fine. He waited tables, got high with his friends, went to raves. But Chris's friends had painted a different picture. 
They described a guy who was using a lot of drugs, psychedelic specifically, and very quickly losing his grip on reality. Yeah, I've had a chance to talk with just a few people who knew you during that period. Their observation is that sometimes you weren't making so much sense. There was one incident that Juan Carbonell shared and stayed with me. He remembers you were at a party and The Simpsons was on and, and it was muted, but you said that you could hear it anyway. Um, and, and then there's this story about how your hair were antenna. You said that were picking up bad vibes or, or frequencies. I think my mind was providing the sounds that would have otherwise been generated by the television. So it was sort of like, you know, when you hear music in your head, you like a song a lot and you think about it and it, the, the music sort of plays in your head. I think in terms of the hair with the antenna, I was just sort of, I don't know, maybe just postulating some possibility. I mean, maybe that's what hair does in some way. I don't, I don't really know. But I think at the time I was just extrapolating on just some random thought. At this point, it wasn't clear to me if Chris believed he'd ever had a mental illness at all. I mean, that hair thing. But then... In 99 was the first time that I got put into a mental hospital. Can you take me back to the beginning? How, how did it start? The first real, maybe, instance of it that I can remember was when I was in high school. Occasionally, when I would be going to sleep, I would hear my name being repeated. This was just something at the time that I disregarded, but I think may have been an early symptom of a later manifestation. Chris was starting to open up a bit about his mental health. He even acknowledged there'd been a diagnosis. I'll come back to that in a minute. But in this early part of our conversation, I still didn't feel I was getting a clear picture. Was he being evasive? Or did he just not remember the details of things that happened over 20 years ago? Chris wasn't getting much help during this period, at least not in any sustained way. His only psychiatric care came when he landed in the hospital or had to renew his prescriptions. Chris said a doctor never really sat him down and explained what a future with schizophrenia can look like. At times, I got the impression that Chris thought of his condition more like a phase he'd gone through. You know, I think we go through puberty when we're, you know, 13, 14, 15, but I think we go through a spiritual puberty too when we're, when we're in our 20s. It was a positive growth experience for me. What his doctors had diagnosed as severe mental illness, Chris, I think, maybe saw as a kind of free-thinking nonconformism. It's really hard to put words around it, but basically it reminded me, you know, that I'm part of a, a universe that is connected by something. And so I started to sort of maybe question other beliefs that I might have had about things like language, for example. Like, why do we use the words that we use to communicate? So I started to try and design like a different language. I mean, I think there were some instances where I was exhibiting behavior that wouldn't necessarily be seen as normal, but I don't know if I would also call them symptoms of mental illness. What he thought about his mental health? It mattered to me because it was the biggest lie of omission on his profile. It was the thing that, had it been disclosed, would have kept him from ever becoming donor 9623. It's what keeps Wendy and so many of the other parents up at night that might still for years to come. And I didn't know what to make of what he was telling me now. 
Had Chris himself experienced this period differently? Was he just having a hard time remembering it? Or was he lying to me, like he had on his donor profile? Another thing Chris hadn't been upfront about was his criminal history, including his guilty plea for felony burglary in 2005. I figured this would be sensitive too. But again, Chris surprised me. I had been feeling really, really depressed. I wasn't able to earn a lot of money, so I didn't feel like much of his success. I'd heard about this incident from Lieutenant Scott, the officer I interviewed about Chris's run-ins with the Georgia police. Chris's version of the story matched the police report almost exactly. Chris told me he'd walked into a gun range and asked to rent a firearm. When the clerk asked what kind, Chris said, something to kill himself. The clerk called the police, who escorted Chris out of the shop. And when I left the gun range, I walked outside and I sort of had this renewed feeling of being alive. You know, I was just grateful to be alive. This moment, when Chris left the gun range, is when he noticed chunks of granite nearby outside and hatched his plan to sell it, to make countertops. I mentioned this before. He needed a truck to haul the granite scraps. I didn't have the money to ship the truck. So in my very confused mind, I decided that I was going to steal and I was going to use the money to pay for the shipping for this truck. This plan, the countertop, the truck, I'm not sure it reflects the logic of a person who's thinking clearly. Do you remember your state of mind during that period? I think I was really scared at the time because I realized I was taking a very big risk. I remember battling with that and trying to overcome that fear because I I felt like this business was viable and I could maybe provide a lifestyle for myself that wouldn't be so paycheck to paycheck. Chris said prison almost broke him. It was earth shattering. Just little things that you wouldn't think about, like being able to walk 50 feet in one direction or the color of the trees outside, you know, or a flower. Trying to sleep was very difficult because it was so cold and because you only have one blanket. I'm kind of tall, and the blanket didn't really cover me altogether, so I had to, like, curl up in a fetal position with this blanket over me while I'm trying to sleep in this place. The whole thing was really a dehumanizing experience, I have to say. I can't laugh as easily as I used to. Did you ever think about the kids when you were in jail? Yeah. All the time. All the time. I didn't want them to find out about it because I didn't want them to be humiliated who their biological father was because they're related to somebody who's seen as this loser. Just weeks after he got out of prison, Chris, then 29, was back at Zytex, donating more sperm and recording that interview with Mary Hartley. Do you remember this time you went to Zytex and you did a conversation with Mary Hartley and was recorded. Yes, I remember. I wanted to play you a couple excerpts of that if I could. Oh boy, okay. I just remember thinking, good gosh, what a mature young man you were. And and I could just tell from our first conversation that you were very special. I, I, I already figured just from our first conversation, this guy has got to be very above IQ of the, uh, you had a <laughs> way above average IQ, I could just tell. I appreciate it. And that. you were just so mature beyond your years. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, you're just going to be the perfect sperm donor. How do you remember that moment? 
I remember feeling flattered. I was definitely an impressionable youth, and I didn't get a lot of praise from a lot of avenues, right? So like my experience with my first stepfather was very negative, and so I came out of that experience with low self-esteem. So I'm sort of a sucker for flattery, and I think you know that's, that's kind of what was happening there. I just felt very flattered. Here's one more clip from that same interview. Okay. I could tell the genuine, uh, the genuineness from the very beginning. I was like, you know, this guy, he's the type that, you know, you really, you know, you really strive to get. But I could tell that you were going to be someone who would stick with it, even if it meant driving some distance. What's it like hearing this? It's tough because in some ways she's right. At some point I was working three jobs and so getting there was was difficult. But the idea that she's stressing the, the genuineness of things is is tough for me to hear now because I realize that in some ways that's not true. It was good for me to hear at that moment in time. Um, but now it's it's tougher. What do you think is going through your head? Gosh. If you can put yourself back in that moment. I think I was trying to decide whether or not I was doing the right thing, you know, by continuing to donate. I think I had a a genuine moment of reflection, of self-reflection and thought about the integrity of what I was doing and whether or not it was, you know, the right choice. You think you were considering not doing it anymore? Yeah, for sure. Did Chris actually have second thoughts in that moment back in 2006? Or was he just telling me what he thought sounded like the right thing to say? I don't know. If that conversation with Mary Hartley really did prompt him to rethink being a donor, those doubts didn't last long. After that interview with Hartley, Chris kept selling sperm to Zytex, sometimes twice a week, for another eight years. Did they ask you to come back because they needed more? Yes. You were a really popular donor that they were selling out? Yes, they did say a few things to that effect. Like what? Just that I was popular and they were, you know, having trouble keeping me in stock. Did you disclose anything about your mental health issues? I didn't think it was a genetic issue and that's why. You were interested in brain science even back then, it sounds like. Yes, very much so. But that wasn't something that you knew? I know that some people who have mental illness have a genetic component to it, but at the time... I didn't have any evidence to that effect. You said you had received a diagnosis for schizophrenia. What was it again? Schizophreniform. Schizophreniform. Chris corrected me on this a couple of times. It's a condition marked by all the same disorientation as schizophrenia, the paranoid delusions and ominous hallucinations. The difference is, the symptoms of schizophreniform typically last six months or less. It seemed important to Chris to convey that any psychosis he'd experienced had been temporary. But in the public documents about his medical history, schizophreniform was never mentioned. The records in that court file said he'd been diagnosed with chronic diseases, schizophrenia, or schizoaffective disorder. And that's how Chris himself described his condition under oath when he pleaded guilty to burglary in November of 2005. There was also that YouTube comment posted under his name, the one the moms found in June of 2014, that said, I have schizophrenia. I decided not to press him on the discrepancy. 
To my ears, it was a way of signaling that whatever he'd been through back then wasn't part of the person he is now. However Chris defined his illness, the fact is he'd already been diagnosed with schizophrenia by the time he went to Zytex in 2000 and applied to be a sperm donor, which is when he filled out the questionnaire that included the disease. And that's listed here as a question, and it says no. And I'm sorry for that. I have a lot of regret that I didn't disclose that fact. And I hope that, you know, the families involved and particularly the children involved can find it in their hearts to forgive me. It's definitely something that I think about every day. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't encounter some sense of of remorse or regret about that because I know that they must feel like I betrayed their trust. And, you know, I think that's justified. And I, I feel terrible about it. I really do. I really felt for Chris here. What would you say to their parents? That I'm sorry, you know, for betraying their trust. That was a shitty thing, and I'm not happy about it. But that I hope that we can, you know, look for a positive outcome and just try and make the best of, of maybe a non-optimal situation. Do you believe now that there was some genetic component to what you were going through? I don't know. It's a good question. I have no idea. As painful as all of this was for him, I still have a hard time believing Chris didn't know that any biological kids he had would be at significantly higher risk of developing mental illness. Schizophrenia, schizophreniform, either way it's serious, and the science is clear that for all we still don't know about these diseases, there's a strong genetic component. I just don't buy that Chris, bright as he was and so interested in brain science, didn't know this. And yet, when Chris talked about the children he'd helped conceive, he really seemed to care about them. The fact is, were it not for him, these kids wouldn't exist. But now that they do, they carry the risks of his serious mental illness. Maybe that fact was just too much for him to accept or admit. Do you remember when Zyconnects came out? Yeah. So it's like a third-party vehicle for communication between donors and families. Do you remember when they sent you a book of photos of your, your kids? Yeah, I sure do. It's awesome. Did the kids look like you? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Some of them looked like some of my relatives. I remember one of the boys in particular is the spitting image of one of my cousin's sons. Just a few months after he got this book of photos, Chris's world imploded. He learned that Zytex had accidentally leaked his identity to some of the parents. Now, they knew everything. So I was at school, and I got a phone call from somebody from Zytex saying that there had been suits filed. And I had basically what amounted to a nervous breakdown. And I contacted some friends uh, who put me in touch with an attorney. And things just sort of snowballed from there. So to say that it was stressful is an understatement. There's this police report from 2016. It sounds like you went to the police to turn yourself in. Right. Can you tell me about that? I was just feeling very guilty. And they, you know, took my statement, uh, but it didn't go anywhere from there, which I'm extraordinarily grateful for. 
I felt, I don't know, like my worst nightmare had come true. I, I was embarrassed. I was remorseful. But yeah, it was really, really tough. Really tough. When his email address was inadvertently leaked, it had to have come as a shock to him. The sperm bank was supposed to have concealed his identity. Chris says he doesn't hold a grudge against Zytex and never considered suing the company for failing to keep his name secret. Sperm banks work hard to keep things transactional, clean. But the business they're in, making babies, forming families, it's messy. It's not just that sperm and egg come together in random, unpredictable ways. It's also that the people they come from are complicated themselves. Yes, Chris had misrepresented crucial facts in his iTex questionnaire. But it wasn't as simple as the company or news reports had made it out to be. Looking back to this period when they were asking you questions, you were providing some information, they were creating this profile. Do you think that the truth would have disqualified you as a donor? I probably thought so at the time, but I don't know. If you had checked the box for schizophrenia. Right. Well, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it wouldn't have been schizophrenia. It would have been schizophreniform. But, I mean, it's possible. Is there anything else that you wish had been presented in that profile back then? The inaccuracies about my having degrees, I wish I hadn't done that. I think I was just trying to build myself up as a better person. Why do I think he did it? There was a practical issue of cash flow, sure. And maybe being a donor, donor 9623, it felt good. It didn't just let him build himself up as a better person. Hartley and all the moms, they gushed over him, treated him like a superstar, even gave him a book full of pictures of all his beaming kids. Juan Carbonell told me during this period when Chris was really struggling, Chris's parents had kicked him out of the house. From what I can tell, a lot of people in his life backed away from him over these years. And when everything else in his life was falling apart, maybe walking through the doors of Zytex was a kind of escape the only refuge he had. But I think it goes deeper than that. I had a theory I wanted to ask Chris about. I wonder if in some way, donor 9623, in him were you creating the man you saw yourself becoming? That in a sense you were recreating this future that was robbed of you. Like the you that you would have become had things stayed on, on track. Yeah, I would agree with that. There is a sense that by the time I met those children, you know, 18 years later, those things would have or could have come to fruition. Back when I was talking with Dr. Lieberman, chief psychiatrist at Columbia, something he said stuck with me. It's a, an illness that befalls people just as they're coming into the prime of their life, when they're developing an identity, becoming independent, aspirations in front of them. Getting to be donor 9623 let Chris live out this alternative version of himself, the one that held so much promise before his disease took that from him. And I hope to someday be a professor at a university medical school. 
What made it possible for him to father dozens of children using that alter ego was a climate that seems almost ripe for deception. The case of Donor 9623 grew out of a few unfortunate circumstances. First, this is an industry that doesn't carefully verify what donors say about their family history and credentials, that largely takes those claims on faith. Next, you have a young guy like Chris, in need of cash and down on his luck, with a rap sheet, mental illness, and a healthy dose of smarts and charm. A guy who the Zytex ad promised, quote, an easy, anonymous way to make some serious money. Finally, you've got people desperate to fulfill one of the most basic human urges, to have a kid. And when they turn to a sperm bank, they're forced to rely completely on the information advertised in its donor profiles when choosing the man who will provide half the biology for their future child. The stakes are so high. This is the business of creating human beings. Do you think of yourself as a father? Not really. I think it's a different thing just being somebody's biological father. But in a way, I do. In, in some, some strange way. Can I play you a moment from an exchange with one of the moms? Sure. She said, well, you know what? I love him anyway. I showed her pictures of him, and she was, like, teary-eyed. Teary-eyed, like happy. Yeah, she was happy that, you know, she could put a face to him. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'll carry that with me, you know. I'll carry that with me. What does it feel like? Relief. You know, that love is real, that it's powerful. And you know, I've known that my whole life, but just, it's nice to be reminded. I hope I get to meet her someday. That would be really great. What do you want to say to them? That I care about them, that I care about their lives and I want them to do well. I hope that they can learn from my mistakes and not make the same mistakes in their lives. And that when they do make mistakes, it's important to realize that everybody does it. And just to ask for help when you need it. If something happens to them or if they happen to experience any symptoms of mental illness, they need to reach out, not be afraid, because there's nothing to be afraid of. Like I said, I take a pill right before bed, and that's it. You know, I see a therapist every once in a while. But mostly, you know, like I said, I just want to know that I care, that any mistakes I made hopefully have no bearing on, you know, anything to, to do with how we can, can move from here. You were talking earlier about stigma, how people are often afraid or ashamed to talk about their own experience with mental illness. And I can't help but get the impression that it's something that you, like anyone, you know, struggle some to talk about too. Yeah, I think so. But it's getting better. I think because I have a better handle on things and because my life is more stable, I'm able to reconcile the idea that I'm not a broken person. Because for a long time, it really felt like that. You know, it felt like something was just intrinsically wrong with me. And I know that that's not true. 
that, you know, even though I may be flawed, I'm not broken. I'm not a loser. I'm not this villain that I feel like I've been portrayed as. What do you want the kids to most know about you now? (sighs) You know, that in my own way, I'm a success. Even after all the bullshit, all the the tough times, that I, I feel very happy most of the time. Back when I met him and his mom in Peachtree, Georgia, Alex Norman told me about that first time he saw his biological dad on a local TV story. He lied about pretty important things. Is there anything you would want to say to these families? Who are these families? The reporter had ambushed Chris outside his home. He looked disheveled, confused, like a homeless woodsman, Alex had told me. That image was traumatizing for Alex. He feared he was looking at his own future. Is this going to be just a really crappy point in my life where I learned that everything's downhill from here on out? One day when I was in grad school, my dad emailed out of the blue. He said he'd be in town, asked if I wanted to meet. Seeing him knocked me sideways. He was so much smaller than I'd remembered, a fraction of the man in my head. I had so many questions, mostly about why he'd left all those years ago. But all he had were excuses that made no sense to me. There was this one story about spies with guns who had chased him down a train tunnel. He said it like it actually happened. It reminded me of something my mom told me when I was little, that mental illness ran in his family. I'll probably never get a clear picture about my dad. But seeing him that day as an adult did resolve something for me. My dad wasn't the hero or monster I'd made him out to be. He was a human being. And that person he was, it was a part of me. But it wasn't everything. And it didn't determine my fate. I keep coming back to something Angie had told me about Donor 9623, when we talked in her kitchen outside Toronto. It's the DNA for this little individual that we've created who I couldn't love more than another human being on the face of the earth. I wanted to build a story beyond what was written on the paper, right? Who, who's my donor? What's he like? What's he into? Is he a good person? Donor 9623, the real Chris, wasn't the Superman his profile described. But he wasn't an egomaniac with a messiah complex either. The man I'd finally interviewed seemed to be a well-functioning adult. He was mostly warm, occasionally guarded, other times surprisingly vulnerable. He was, in a word, complicated. And to Angie, Alex, and all the other families who discovered the truth, they said they're glad to know it, however much it scares them, and hangs over their lives. When they listen to Chris now, I wonder how they'll feel about it all. For his part, Chris says the door is open. Do you imagine that you might still now want to meet those kids? Yes, I would. What do you hope for them? 
I hope that they have long, happy, prosperous, peaceful lives. You know, I, I hope that they realize their dreams. I hope they don't hold a grudge against me. I hope they realize that I'm imperfect, to be sure, but that my intent was not malicious. And I do hope that at some point I'm able to meet, if not all of them, at least some of them. I think it would be a really gratifying experience. This has been an Audible Original, produced by Audible Originals, hosted by Dove Fox. Executive producers, Heather Juan Tesserero and Amy Standen. Producers, Amy Standen, Dove Fox, and Heather Juan Tesserero. Associate producer, Naomi Brauner. Post-production supervisor, Laura Stradley. Edited by Real Audiobooks and Gary Gunn. Mixed and mastered by Real Audiobooks. Original music and sound design by Gary Gunn. Acquisition and development, Najan Naylor. Vice President of Audible Studios, Mike Charzik. Editor-in-Chief, Audible Original Publishing, David Blum. Copyright 2020 by Dove Fox. Sound recording copyright 2020 by Audible Originals, LLC. For more explosive investigations like Donor 9623, listen to The Debutante from journalist John Ronson. In his latest Audible original, Ronson untangles the mystery of Carol Howe, a charismatic debutante who disappeared from the world, but not before she found herself amidst one of the most terrible crimes ever to take place in America. Part conspiracy theory, part mystery. Visit audible.com slash debutante. That's audible.com slash D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E and sign up for your free trial.